If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're in the midst of concluding a study that we began 16 months ago titled, Christ Above All. A study that was all about, and is all about, exalting and magnifying the supremacy and sufficiency of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now most of our study so far has come from the New Testament book of Colossians, but we're finishing our study here in Revelation, because as I mentioned over the last two weeks, the letter of Colossians was to be delivered not only to the believers living in Colossae, but also to the believers that were living in the nearby town of Laodicea. Paul writes in Colossians 4 verse 16, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So Paul was uniquely concerned that this message of Christ above all be delivered to the body of believers that were gathering in Laodicea at that time. He wanted them to remember and to recall that Christ alone is the only one who can bring freedom and fulfillment to the human soul. The only one who can give a person spiritual richness and righteousness, divine wisdom and understanding. The only one that can reconcile sinners to a holy God. Only Christ. Only Christ. Well, the Laodiceans received that letter and that message. The only problem was, as we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They were not zealous to change their lives and to establish Christ as Lord above all in their ambitions, affections, and actions. And so, 30 years later, Jesus in the book of Revelation has the Apostle John write a letter of love to the church in Laodicea, urging them to return to Him as Lord of their lives and supreme object of their affections and desires. That letter began... In verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3, with a vision of the church's assessor. As Jesus returns to the very same descriptions of himself that were given to the Laodiceans 30 years prior. He reminds them that he is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In other words, Jesus Christ is the only one uniquely positioned to give us the true and trustworthy counsel that our wandering souls require. And then last week we saw the church's ailment in verses 15 through 17. And there we saw that the church's ailment was a condition of what you could call stagnant self-sufficiency. Stagnant self-sufficiency. By taking their eyes off of the spiritual riches that are found in Christ, and by considering only the spiritual poverty that they perceived in the lives of others, the Laodiceans had come to the conclusion that they were better off than others and in need of nothing. We're not like those legalists that are talked about in Colossians. We're not like those mystics or those aestheticists downstream. No, we're orthodox. We've got right doctrine. We've got a right understanding of Scripture, of Christ, of salvation, of the Holy Spirit. We're rich. We've prospered. And we need nothing. That was their assessment of themselves. How frightening. The Laodiceans had drawn so far away from a close fellowship with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and from beholding His glory, that they no longer felt their desperate, pressing, continual need for Him. 
And in that twisted mindset of self-sufficiency, they had ceased to be a spiritually healing and enlivening influence in the lives of those around them. As Jesus said, they had become lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Having lost a sense of their own need for Jesus Christ, they had neglected sharing to others their need for Christ as well. Their spiritual self-sufficiency led to spiritual stagnation. They didn't tell others about their need for Jesus because they themselves had lost their sense of their need. And so instead of pursuing a deep and abiding fellowship with Christ above all, the Laodiceans became so mixed up in worldly ambitions, pursuits, affections, riches, and success that they no longer had any time to devote to the Word of Christ, the throne of Christ, or the body of Christ. They no longer had any time to heal the lost and refresh the saved by applying the message of Christ. They no longer had any time to make and mature disciples of Christ. They no longer had any time to pursue Christ above all. You know, the greatest insult to God is to think to yourself, I have no need of Him. And that is exactly where the Laodiceans were. And so Jesus says here in Revelation 3 that if nothing changes, He is ready to spit that assembly out of His mouth. Why? Because He loves His people. And He longs for their fellowship too much to allow such a spiritual condition to endure And so we've seen the church's assessor, and we've seen the church's ailment. They say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Today we're going to see the church's answer to their ailment in verses 18 through 19. And then consider, likely next week, the church's awards or motivations for following Jesus in verses 20 through 22. So the church's assessor, the church's ailment, the church's answer, and the church's awards. So with that in mind, let's read Revelation chapter 3, starting at verses 14, on into verse 22. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records these words of Christ. Verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 20. Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Word of God, who deals with His servants according to His steadfast love and teaches us faithfully His statutes. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for this passage of Scripture that we are studying as a church. Father, I thank You for how it brings us right back to all the truths that we have been studying over the last 16 months. Father, I pray that this morning it would press home to us once again the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and our utter continual desperate need for Him. Father, I pray that this morning through the teaching of Your Word that Your Spirit would apply salve to our eyes that we might truly see the glory of Jesus and that we might open the door and fellowship with Him. For that is what He desires more than anything else. Open our eyes, I pray. Change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So having reminded the Laodiceans in verse 14 of who it was that was speaking to them, and after revealing in verses 15 through 17, the diagnosis of their spiritual ailment, that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, Jesus then gives to that stagnant, self-sufficient church the church's answer. In verses 18 through 19, in other words, Jesus shows the Laodiceans the prescription, if you will, for their ailment, or the solution, or the path forward to take in order to turn from that condition of stagnant self-sufficiency and to turn towards exalting Jesus Christ above all. Once again, and notice how Jesus begins in verse 18. He says, I counsel you. That is astonishingly warm and gentle term. It is symbolo in the Greek, and it pictures someone who draws near. It pictures someone who pulls you in close in order to show you something better. And as a dad, it was not hard for me to think of an illustration for this, right? It's like when one of my boys was trying to learn how to make paper airplanes. His frustration grew and grew until I saw his frustration one day. I sat down and I pulled him close to me. And there, sitting side by side, I showed him how to fold the paper. I showed him a better way. The better way. And so it is with Christ towards us. We're so often like the Laodiceans, right? We drift away from fellowship with Christ. And all the while telling ourselves, I need nothing. 
in, in, at least in terms of our relationship with Jesus, we then look for freedom and fulfillment. We then look for strength and peace in so many other things in life. In other words, we try to make it throughout the day without fellowshipping with Jesus. And what happens? We get more and more frustrated. And we start wondering to ourselves, why do I never seem to have the resources and strength that I need even though I'm a Christian? Why do I never seem to have the settledness of spirit and the peace I need to navigate life even though I know the Lord? It's because we forget the words of Christ that he spoke to us in John 15 verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I think I can handle the day. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can at least make it through my shower before I need to think about you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does Jesus do? Just like with the Laodiceans, Jesus shakes us up from our stagnant self-sufficiency. He shows us often through our failing and falling and fears that apart from Him, we are wretched people, poor, blind, and naked. He reveals to us the true nature of our soul when we are, when we are apart from fellowship with Him. And then in total love and tenderness, what does He do? He says, come, sit with me for a while. Let me counsel you and let me show you the better way. If you're a Christian here today and you're feeling frustrated, like you don't have the ability and strength and resources you need for the day, the peace and stability that is required for your struggles against the world, the flesh, and the devil, listen, I want you to hear in this passage your Savior calling to you. He is saying to you this day, even though He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, He is coming to you in astounding gentleness and tenderness. I counsel you to buy from Me. Not from the world. Not from yourself. Buy from Me. Come to Christ. Sit beside Him for a while. Let Him show you something better. Pour your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Learn from Him, for He is gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The faithful and true witnesses buy from Me. The Spirit and the Bride say, as we read this morning in Revelation 22, Come, and let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus is saying to you today, I counsel you to buy from me three things. Three things. First, first, reliable resources. Jesus says here, I counsel you to buy from me what? He says, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. See, the Laodiceans uh, were located at the intersection of two major trade routes. Uh, And one of the big issues of that day was counterfeit or deceptive money. So, for example, a trickster might come into your shop for the day and say, I want to buy your goods. And he'd give you, you know, a gold coin, right? He'd say, I want to pay for this with this gold coin. And you'd weigh it. And the gold coin appeared to weigh and to be worth a certain amount of money. The only problem is you find out later that that gold that he paid you with was mixed with a cheaper metal. It wasn't pure gold. It was mixed with worthless dross. 
This made business unreliable because you never knew how much money you really had on hand for your needs until you melted down all of your coins to see how much true gold was left. It got so bad, in fact, that Laodicea started minting their own coins in an attempt to counteract this problem. Well, here Jesus tells us to buy from him gold refined already by fire so that you may be rich. In other words, Jesus has resources for you that are reliable. He has riches for you that will never, ever, ever let you down. No matter how fiery the trial you go through, you will find God's promises to you ever faithful, ever true. That is what this is saying. As Scripture says, whoever depends on Him will never be put to shame. Every word of God proves true. He is a refuge for those who trust in Him. Among all the unsearchable riches of Christ, there is not one drop of dross to be found. He is altogether lovely and there is no flaw or blemish in Him. And so as Isaiah 55, 2-3 says, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Right? Incline your ear. Come to Christ. Hear that your soul may live. So, when Christ uses circumstances to show you that you've drifted away from Him, and that you are standing wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and when Christ, through days of hardship is knocking at your door because he's pushed because you've pushed him out of your life during days of ease. What are you supposed to do in that moment? You are to hear his gentle counsel, open the door and let him in. You're to sit with him and he with you and there enjoy the exceeding riches of his grace and the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Being in continual need, you are to come to Christ and receive from him reliable riches. Could it be that you're exhausted, worn out, beat down because you're turning to everything else in life that is unreliable and not to the one person who can make you truly rich with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Being in continual need, you are to come to Christ and receive from Him reliable riches. He will never let you down. Second, we are to come to Christ and receive from Him true transformation. This is powerful, this part of the passage. Jesus also tells the Laodiceans here to buy from him, he says, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, as I mentioned last week, Laodicea was famous really around the empire for their rich, raven, black uh, wool that would be bought for clothing. Well, here Jesus says, in contrast to black clothing, he says, buy from me white garments so that you can clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, white garments in the book of Revelation are symbolic of righteousness, as Revelation 7, verse 14 indicates. And so, it would be really easy to assume here that Jesus is telling unbelievers to get saved, right? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus be declared and counted righteous before God in heaven. But we need to remember that Jesus here is talking to believers, to those who have already been justified, who have already been declared righteous. And yet Jesus says here, I want you to buy from me white 
garments. In other words, I want you to receive from me real righteousness so that you can be clothed and not walk around anymore in shame. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, first we need to remember that there are two types of righteousness that is given to every believer who ever trusts in Jesus Christ. The first type of righteousness is what some theologians like to call positional righteousness. It is the righteousness which a sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ receives. He is declared and counted as righteous before God in heaven. That happens instantly the moment we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. We receive positional righteousness. God looks at us and declares us righteous in the courtroom of God, of heaven. But there's another type of righteousness that theologians uh, like to call practical righteousness that's given to us in Christ. And this is in which a believer who's already been declared righteous before God in heaven begins to behave as righteous before men here on earth, right? Positional, Positional righteousness is being declared righteous before God in heaven, Practical righteousness is behaving as righteous before men here on earth. And unlike the other, this second form of righteousness does not happen instantly, does it? As all of us can attest, can I hear an amen? Thank you. It is a process. It is a process. That transformation of practical righteousness is something that can only happen over time as we come to know Christ more and more and walk with Him. As 1 John 2.6 says, as we abide in Him, we begin to walk in the same manner in which He walked. So this is the righteousness that Jesus is speaking of here. It is a practical righteousness. It is becoming more like Him in everything we say and do. And Jesus says, I want you to receive from Me this practical righteousness. Why? He says, so that you may not clothe so that you may clothe yourself in this righteousness and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen so that people in other words will see righteousness when they look at you not sin not sin because that's what brings shame right it's sin as Romans 6:21 defines sins they are the things of which you are now ashamed sin brings shame And in fact, the more people in our world that pride themselves in their sin will bring upon them someday even more everlasting shame. Because sin brings shame. No human being will ever stand before God in heaven someday and boast in their evil deeds. They will be silent before Him to whom they must give an account. Sin brings shame. And sin brings shame, by the way, not just for unbelievers... Sin brings shame for believers also, right? And as I was considering it this week, might it also be said that sin might even bring more shame to believers in this life? Think about it. Sin is antithetical to the new life that we claim to have in Jesus Christ. And it is the opposite of walking in a manner that is fully pleasing to Him. And so sin brings shame, even and especially to believers. And so what Jesus is saying here is, let's take care of that. Let's cover that shame with garments of righteousness. How? By coming to me. That's what Jesus says. He says, buy from me white garments and you'll be clothed and your shame will be covered. You will experience true transformation. Come to Christ if you seek this. Come to Christ. 
This morning, believer, if you are in the midst of a fierce battle against sin, look to Christ. Look to Him first as the hope of your victory against that sin. Just as Moses' outstretched arms on the hill was a sign of victory to the embattled Israelites in Exodus 17.11, so also Christ with His arms outstretched upon the cross is the guarantee of our victory to be won also. The battle belongs to the Lord and it is a battle He is already won. That is why He cried out on the cross, It is finished! As Colossians 2.13-14 states, God has forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Every single one of your sins today, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, have been absolutely forgiven. Completely paid for. By the sacrifice of Christ. And therefore, in light of that, it is with our eye on that victory that we fight our battles today. Look to Christ, for He is the hope of your victory. Second, He is the key to your victory. There is no shortcut to sanctification. No fast lane to becoming more like Jesus. As the Puritan pastor Thomas Chalmers once wrote, the only way the heart can be dispossessed of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, in order to love sin less, which is why we sin, we sin because we love it, in order to sin, love sin less, we must love Christ more. You must come to know Christ, must behold in His Word the excellencies of His beauty and drink more deeply of His fellowship so that your growing love for Him slowly but irresistibly drives out your love for every other lesser thing, every carnal desire. I want you to know that through my years of struggling with sin and youthful lusts for the glory of Christ, I have turned to every available avenue to fight it. Every resource that ever promised me freedom. Let me tell you, in the end, it is all empty cisterns that hold no water if you don't come to Jesus. The only thing that begins to cover my shame as a believer and clothe me with enduring practical righteousness that glorifies Christ in this world is by keeping my heart near Christ and seeking after a greater knowledge and communion with Him. For to know Christ is to love Him and to love Christ is to obey Him. Only Jesus can cover shame and nakedness and replace it with righteousness and true transformation. You know this if you trusted in Him for your salvation. Trust in Him for your sanctification as well. Come to Christ for He is the hope and key to your victory. So when Christ uses the shame of your sin to show you that you've drifted away from Him and you are standing wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and when in that moment Christ is knocking at your door, what are you to do? You are to hear His gentle counsel, open the door, and let Him in. Not five steps to success. Let fellowship with Christ back into your life. You are to sit with Him and He with you that He might begin to clothe you with white garments and cover the shame of your nakedness so that when the world sees you as a follower of Christ, they might see the virtues of Christ and not the shame of your sin. Being in continual need, you are to come to Christ and receive from Him true transformation. Reliable riches, true transformation. And finally, for this morning, accurate awareness. 
The final thing Jesus tells the Laodiceans to buy from him is what? It says, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, Jesus was using things that would be very familiar to the Laodiceans. See, the city of Laodicea was renowned for its doctors and its medicine. The town had a world-famous medical school that was filled with doctors so famous that they posted their names on the coins that they minted. Really weird, but becoming more understandable. The most famous graduate of the school, who likely was alive at this time, was a man named Demosthenes, who authored the most influential work on ophthalmology and eye diseases in the ancient world. And not only that, but this influential Laodicean school of doctors produced unique medicines that could only be found and made in the city of Laodicea. One was a, was a, was a salve made out of spikenard that, when applied to the ears, was rumored to improve weak hearing. And the other was a powdered ointment made of Phrygian stone that, when applied to the eyes, was rumored to make weak eyesight strong. Well, here Jesus takes that same idea, and he tells those believers who had drifted so far away from Christ in stagnant self-sufficiency that they didn't even know that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus says to them, I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. So you can see. That is truly see. So that you won't be blinded again by this fake sense of self-sufficiency but rather that you would remember and be aware of your constant, continual need for me so that you might be of some eternal good in this world. You need salve from Christ to be able to truly see. This is ultimately the underlying problem that the Laodiceans had. They couldn't see. They couldn't properly see their own poverty because they had been refused to be anointed with fresh visions of Christ's glory from the truth of God's Word. See, their eyesight as believers had become so spiritually weak to the point where they had begun to see things with the eyes of this world. We're rich. We're prosperous. We're not as bad as those folks over there, and therefore we're in need of nothing. They had become so spiritually weak-sighted that they were of no spiritual benefit at all. They couldn't see their own needs, let alone be able to meet the healing and enlivening needs of others. And so Jesus, in absolute Love and tenderness says as the faithful and true witness, come, sit beside me for a while, let me apply my truth to your eyes so that you might truly see. And that is the Sabbath, it is the truth of God. Why do you think Satan, the very first thing he attacked when Adam and Eve were in the garden, was their relationship to God and what he had said. If I can make them blind, I can make them fall for anything. Believer, Are you coming to Christ so that you might truly see? How good is your eyesight this morning? Just like an eye doctor asks you to read letters on a wall to test your eyesight, let me ask you four questions to test the strength of your spiritual eyesight this morning. Okay? So here you go. First, I want all of you here to consider, what information do you see as your most important and pressing need? What information do you see as your most pressing and important need? Reading the news or reading your Bible? If you had time for only one of these activities, which one do you choose? Reading the news or reading your Bible? Second test. 
for spiritual eyesight. What conversations do you see as your most important and pressing needs? What conversations do you see as your most important and pressing need? Sending and replying to all of your texts and emails and private messages? Or spending time with God in prayer? If you had time to only do one of these activities, which ones do you choose? A conversation with men? Or a conversation with God? Third test. What resources do you see as your most important and pressing need in life? What resources do you see as your most, imp- as mo- your most important and pressing need in life? A lottery ticket for $1 billion. Or an empty bank account with the promise from God that He will always meet your truest and deepest needs. If you could only have one or the other, which one would it be? Would you choose the money? Or would you choose the opportunity to experience the day-to-day provision of God towards those who believe? And then finally, what identity do you see as your most important and pressing need? What identity do you see as your most important and pressing need? If you had a choice between having all your greatest political dreams realized, all your candidates elected across the board, and all of your issues dealt with just the way you want them from sea to shining sea, or having the opportunity to identify with Christ as a stranger in exile in this world, if you could only have one or the other, which option would you choose? Your political identity fully experienced or your spiritual one? How good is your eyesight this morning, believer? Have you been neglecting the salve of Christ? What do you honestly see as more important? What do you honestly see, seek after most on a daily basis? Earthly information, earthly conversations, earthly resources, and earthly identities? Or does your life show that you seek to take hold of the information, conversation, resources, and identity that are found in Christ? Your thinking is shaped by the world. If communication with people is what's most important to you, if you're trusting in money, and if you identify more with a political platform or person than with the teachings of Christ, then you're a Laodicean. But if you know that what you need is the Bible, and if your spare moments should be filled with prayer, and you know it is better to trust in God than to have all the money that this world can offer, and if you understand that a sense of home and of rest and of belonging will never come to you until Jesus Christ returns from heaven and splits the skies, then you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone above all. The Sabbath truth has been applied to you this morning. Take a look at yourself. Have you drifted away from Christ? Have you begun to act as if you were rich, prosperous, and in need of nothing, or do you see today your need for Him? You will never outgrow your need for Christ, and that is why Jesus says, Come to me. Come, sit beside me for a while, and receive from me reliable riches, true transformation, and an accurate awareness of who you are and of your endless need for me. Come to Jesus and live.
That is true not only for an unbeliever, but for a believer. Christ is your life. Colossians chapter 3. And then Jesus says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. We live in a world that says, if there's reproof and discipline, there must not be love. That is polar opposite. It is the parents who do not love their children that never discipline them and never reprove them, that can let them continue in their way. Here, Jesus wants us to understand the heart, his heart behind his words, and that is a heart of love, of matchless love. See, Revelation 1, verse 5, just a page over from here, reminds us that Jesus loved us and he freed us from our sins by his own blood. In other words, Jesus' great love drove him to die on that cross because sin separated us from him in his holiness. And so Jesus died. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we who were once far off could be drawn near to him. I have a question for you this morning. Do you think that he who shed his own blood to bring you near to him will sit idly by and watch the sin that you have been freed from by his own blood lead you slowly away from him in fellowship? Not on your life. Like a loving father, he will come for you and he will bring you back on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake so that there you might walk with him. So if you've drifted away from Christ this week and the salve applied to your eyes has shown you that you are caught standing wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked before him today and that you have been overcome by a spiritual ailment of stagnant self-sufficiency, Christ is not angry with you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And He is knocking at your door today to let Him in. I urge you this morning to hear His gentle counsel and do just that. Obey, open the door, and let Him in. Sit with Him this week once again in Bible reading and prayer. It might have been a couple of days for some of you. might have been a couple of weeks. For some of you, it might have been years. It's time to sit with Christ for a while. In in His presence, receive reliable riches, true transformation, and an accurate awareness of your endless need for Him. What am I calling you to do? Exactly what Colossians chapter 2 said. As you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Confess your need for Christ and draw near to Him in desperate dependency and faith for what only He can provide. This is how you exalt Christ above all. It begins with an awareness of your endless need for Him. And so, by God's grace, let us keep that awareness this week by staying close to Christ and by finding in Him above all everything we need. We'll have to look at the rest of the passage next week. But for now, this is the Word of God from Revelation 3.18-19, through 19, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until the great need and desire of our souls returns. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for showing us once again everything that Jesus is. And everything that Jesus gives to those who come to Him. Even as we learn in Sunday school this morning, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. 
And here Jesus once again is calling, Come. Come. Father, I pray that we would do that this week. As followers of Christ, help us to follow after Him. Help us, Father, to sit at His feet and receive from Him the reliable resources that we need for each challenge. Help us to find in Him the true transformation that we need. Help us to find in Him help us to find in Him that truth that opens our eyes and that shows us afresh His glory and our need for Him. Father, help us to not walk one day this week without a sense of how much we need Jesus. May this lead us on a path this week of honoring and glorifying Him above all so that we might be of some eternal good in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.